Welcome back, everyone. This is Ron Stefanski from Disrupt Ed, where we talk to the do-gooders and the determined, the passionate and purpose-driven who are making life in this ginormously disrupted world better for all of us, and in particular, and most especially, our children. We don't have to have children of our own to care about all children. And that's what this episode has been about. When you listen to these three inspiring thought leaders in education, Ashley Anderson Zantup and Kemi Akinsanya Rose and John Jorgensen, welcome back to episode two. In our last episode, we were talking about the state of the state. And it's, you know, there's a lot going on, no doubt. Um, but you said something, Ashley, that inspired us to break off and start to continue this conversation in a second episode. And that is, how do we make this happen? We know that people are facing these challenges, that they're finding things difficult, that we're trying to make it easier for them in the classroom with the resources and tools available to us now. What does that look like and how do we do that? Um, so that the ultimate arbiter of that is our students. They walk out saying, wow, I want to go to school. I want to go back. Or I want to stay at home and work on this project today. And that's going to be my my home classroom time. But however they do it, they're turned on to their learning. That's ultimately the goal, right? That's where, because the more time on task, the more successful our students are. And the only way to increase time on task is to give them agency and excitement for doing that. So, so Ashley, let's pick up where we left off. You're talking about the how and how are we going to do this? It's a massive undertaking to get it right with our students. And we learned a few things in uh, the pandemic, one of which I think that we don't talk enough about is we learned that it's okay not to be in a physical space and that there are times when that can work and that may be actually better under the circumstances. For example, a student who doesn't need to be in a classroom because they're sick and they're only going to get others sick. But we don't have to, because of the technology now and what we've learned from COVID, we don't have to let the learning stop now. We can we can create, we have the tools, we can make them portable now. And I think one of the things that comes uh, from the pandemic is an appreciation for how the learning environment can flex based on different circumstances. You want to talk a little bit about that and how you see that? Uh, and I invite you all to jump in on that one. Sure. Well, first, I will start with this since I'm located in Minneapolis and we're in the process of receiving what's being billed as like the biggest storm in 100 years or something like that. Um, certainly timely uh, discussion. Um, my daughter's school, for example, is allowed one true snow day a year where school can get called and there's no associated schoolwork and all other um, alternate days or different approaches are just flip models, right? Um, so we've used up our one true snow day for the year. So there's gonna be some online learning um, happening uh, as we go through whatever comes our way with this, with this upcoming storm. Um, certainly that's a benefit when we think about flexing, developing and flexing our skills for different modalities of instruction. Um, that is incredibly useful, not just, you know, in the form of snow days or sick days or those kinds of things to allow learning to continue. But when we think about the ultimate power of technology as a possible transformational agent to allow us to really personalize instruction 
and we think about harnessing the power of technology to really personalize instruction for each student, we have to recognize and start by recognizing that students learn differently. You know, not all students learn the same way. Students learn in very different ways and different modalities of learning and interacting and engaging um, and the opportunity to learn in different modalities can really benefit um, a wide and diverse group of students and certainly the educators and administrators who are trying to serve a wide and diverse group of students. And so that's something that I think that we're thinking about all the time. When we think about the how though, just like with any part of teaching and learning, we can't just expect um, everyone to know how to do that effectively without the opportunity to learn and develop skills in instruction in different modalities, just like we have to learn to deliver um, subject matter instruction. You know, for example, you know, I did my pre-service teaching in lower elementary classrooms and you don't learn in just a semester how to be an excellent instructor of literacy skill development. That's a that in of itself is a skill and an expertise that you hone over time. So when we think about supporting educators who are on the front lines for teaching literacy skill development for our nation's students, we need to teach teachers how to teach reading. <laughs> we need to teach teachers how to how to teach reading based on the science of how reading is learned, how literacy skills are developed and acquired. And that's something that we don't do across the board um, as a nation or as a world. And that's a real opportunity to support our educators further. That's a need and an opportunity. If we support our educators, we support our students. So when we think about the how, those are kind of the practical, really on the ground ways that we think about what does this actually mean to do better, to be better. When my co-host, uh, who's not with us today, Dr. Caesars, talked about his own experience in the classroom and as an administrator at Detroit Public Schools, he talks about the literacy dilemma. And what he talks about is the fact that the Detroit Public Schools at one point spent $40 million on an instructional package of materials for their students. And ultimately, they didn't see any marked improvement in the results. And so what that tells us in a, in, in a one uh bit of evidence is that we need to do it's it's not a question of money it's a question of figuring out to your point what works and bring everyone into that discussion so that you know i i think too many times um some of our teachers seize up because they're under assault my child doesn't read so suddenly that's their fault and i think we need to sort of separate that out because if we separate it out, then people come to the conversation all on the same page. And the, and the same page is this. We want to leave here with a plan for how all of these children are going to be reading by the fourth grade or by the third grade. Because that's really the key. Um, you know, what we can see later on down the road is that problem compounds. So that by the time we get to middle school, a student who's not reading now, interestingly, and, co and not coincidentally, is having behavioral issues. Why? Because that student has already internalized, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and I'm angry about it, or I don't know how to express myself about that. But that comes out in the behavioral and social emotional uh, side of things. And so we've got to figure out the how. You're absolutely right. 
any suggestions uh, among the group here on, on what we're finding is working and where we're seeing um, progress being made that we can shine a light on and expose to more and more teachers in the classroom and administrators in the programs? Yeah, well, first, I, I would also just take that one step further because I think it's really important for us each to think about the opportunity um, for access to a future for each of the students that we're thinking about and each of the students that we're educating and also our collective opportunity, right? If thinking about each individual's student access to the future is not an important enough or a big enough or a specific enough call to action to get us each really energized about this, certainly for a lot of us it is. Um, but if if not that, I think the, the even bigger picture, taking a step back, is really important for us all to think about, um, especially when you when you talk about, Ron, separating out, you know, why hasn't this particular teacher um, taught my student how to read? Um, or um, why isn't this particular solution um, that we've invested in having the outcome um, or creating the outcome that we want um, in our schools? I think we had to step back even bigger picture and think, one, um, what are the wider impacts? So if you look at longitudinal studies on those same topics that you described, um, the ability of students to read proficiently on grade level by the time they get to fourth grade, not only do we see challenges like, um, like the challenges you described at middle school and beyond when, when students are meant to shift from learning how to read to reading to learn, um, which means that for two thirds of our students, which is currently um, where the statistics are and worse for two thirds of our students who aren't reading on grade level by the time they get to fourth grade, longitudinal studies show us that without intervention, those students are four times less likely to graduate from high school. They are um, at significantly increased risk for material lifetime earnings de um, depletion and repression because of that outcome relative to um, high school graduation rates. And so when we think about materially decreased earning potential for individuals, we can think about for each individual what that impact is like. And then we can think about for society, what, is, what does that mean in terms of the opportunity for everybody? Lower total on disposable consumer spending, lower total tax revenues, decreased rates of military service, there's a societal productivity impact um, from these outcomes that we can't afford not to invest in. We just can't afford it, um, you know, as a society. And so we we have to be really intellectually honest at looking at all the inputs. Um, I think for the challenges that are created, and when we start to be honest about the inputs for the challenges that are created, instead of just thinking about the the outputs. Um, so-and-so student didn't achieve this, um, or these students didn't achieve that. When we start looking at the inputs, we realize that what's happening is there's not just an outcome gap, there's an opportunity gap, right? The inputs are not equal. Um, we, are not, we are not in a situation yet where we're giving, giving every student equitable access um, to opportunity. We aren't yet at a stage where Every student has access to a highly trained 
um, teacher in the classroom for whatever grade level and whatever skill sets they're um, they're meant to learn in their grade level. We we are still struggling to get enough teachers in all the classrooms, period, <laughs> in the United States, particularly coming out of the pandemic, let alone the instruction that's actually taking place in those classrooms and the tools that we're using to do it um, and the infrastructure associated with maintaining those tools. So I would open it up to Kemi and John, but I think those are um, some of the fundamental challenges that we have to be really honest about um, if we want to solve um, the challenges that we're facing. I was going to ask Kemi, Kemi, you are in a large urban district and access to opportunities is not equally meted out. Um, how does a district get better at making sure that everyone has equal access? It seems to me that some of the tools that we've recognized are, you know, eliminating suspensions. You know, Caesar, Dr. Caesar was on a recent show with us where he was talking with someone about the fact that they had a kindergartner that was arrested in the classroom and taken out and put into handcuffs, handcuffs that they slipped out of because they were too small to be wearing them. I mean, we have to stop taking kids out of instruction and thinking that we're somehow making it more collectively better for the other students in the class. And we have to figure out how to make sure that the access to the education is equally meted out. You know, your thoughts about that? Building on what Ashley mentioned around teachers, making sure teachers are in classrooms and we start the school year with a teacher in every classroom. You know, when I was in New York City DOE, you know, the beginning of the school year was exciting. Everybody was jazzed about welcoming kids back. And at the same time, we had 200 open principal jobs and, 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 and hundreds of open teacher jobs. And I can only, you know, I, I can, you can probably guess where the open teacher jobs were critically open, typically in the Bronx. Um, yeah, in the Bronx and Queens. And so when you think about inequity, you know, you're already starting from a playing field that is not, you know, balanced. And so in terms of the how and what do we do about that, what I saw in New York City public school systems um, in terms of how to bridge that gap and those issues, it was working with communities um, to help bridge the gap. And so the biggest gains I've seen were in the Bronx, where Bronx uh, principals worked with community-based organizations, worked with other nationwide organizations like Teach for America and that sort of thing to figure out how do how do you fill the pipeline with teachers, um, you know, and, and get teachers in front of, uh, of kids that were, you know, trained to teach. That did not fulfill or uh, solve all the problems, though, because, you know, a lot of those teachers that we were built bringing in were brand new teachers and they needed extra wraparound supports. But they were coming out of the best and brightest teacher preparation schools. and they needed help the first year to get them over that first year of confidence building. So if we could get them a curriculum that was high quality, then they could actually focus on classroom management and engagement of kids. But if you didn't, if the DOE didn't put a lot of those tool wraparound tools in for the new teachers that were going into those um, uh, communities that had, I would say, historically vacant, high vacancies, you know, you were you were already starting from an unlevel playing field. Um, so the best times I've, in the in the DOE that I saw were when we had paid a lot of attention to the under resourced communities. We work with communities to do stuff with them, not to do things to, to them. them. Right. And there's a difference. There's a big difference. I've seen 
I've seen other places where people go into a community and do things to that community without engaging them. And that's, to me, the, the biggest disaster I've seen in my entire org- uh, lifetime in this space, because things don't work that way. And yes, it might take a little bit longer to do that and engage, but I've seen more sustainable kind of practices, not only from an instructional perspective, but from a just total community um, embracing what's best for kids. Not what, what's best for adults, but what's best for kids. I think that's a really good point. The The idea that as communities, we have to engage with each other, not you know, under the guise of it being for each other. Um, because a lot of times when people come in with that baseline perspective, uh, it's it's highly biased. It's it's highly biased in favor yeah. of... And I think that's a critique. That was a critique of Reform Movement 1.0, right. to be honest. Yes, absolutely. And so the question is, like, what's Reform 2.0? And what did we learn from the, the first part of the movement? John, you were going to say something to add to this conversation. You know, you think about these these existential challenges that that we've been talking about, right? You know, the student proficiency um, issues, especially most recently, issues of student well being, which have only been exasperated by um, by the pandemic, and then and then just this growing inequity that we've been talking about, where the the, the access that students have is so different depending um, what zip code they're in. You know, I mean, this just continues to. Be a growing existential issue in education. And then teachers, you know, the idea of, of teachers um, being attracted to the profession, being supported, feeling like it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great place for them to be to make, not just make an impact, but to have a, have a career, you know, think of them as professionals. I mean, these are well-documented, talked about every day, existential challenges in K-12. And so, in terms of soapbox, you know, I, I also think about, we talk about community and I'm thinking about community in another way as well, which is the community of these education and ed tech companies that we are a part of. Cambium is a leading company in in this space and we have a responsibility as a leader to lead by example, to push us forward, all of those things. And so, you know, I, I want to have an impact. I, I got into this uh, this profession um, in in this industry in particular, because I wanted to have an impact, and I wanted to join a company like Cambium that has scale, has an ability to make an impact. You know, nearly thirty million students. That said, I can't really make a huge enough impact on my my own. I certainly, even our company is a single company. So, you know, I think about you know hopping up in the soapbox. I I want to I want to talk to all of the the other companies out there and say, look, um, we can't do this on our own. We need all of us to be be doing our part. We need all of us to be um, playing a role in addressing these existential challenges. And there are kind of three things that that I, I'm constantly thinking about and talking about. The first one is, and we've talked about this a lot already, is do not get distracted away from your purpose. Um, it's really easy to get distracted by a shiny technology, a new funding source, all the things that can drag companies away from why they exist in the first place. And so it's really, really important that you, first of all, know what your purpose is, and second of all, commit to it, and then have a good answer as to how you're going to deliver on it, and then live it, you know, again, that idea of now, day after day after day. So so that's one thing. I, I think the second thing is that, and we talked about this as well, but this idea of edtech brands have to stay close to the teachers and the students and the parents, and the administrators that they are serving. If you get too far away from what 
challenges they're really having. And again, this is that idea of not wanting to put something onto a community, but working with them to help them solve the problems they're telling you that they're having, playing the role that they're telling you they need you to play, not saying, hey, we've got this, we can figure this out for you, but playing your part. I think that's something that uh, I, I see some ed tech companies straying from, um, falling a little bit too in love with their their technology or um, their value proposition and, and forgetting why they're doing it in the first. And then the third thing I think we've talked about this as well, but, you know, get your own house in order. You know, don't just be talking about the world around you, but think about, you know, Cambium is, a, is an organization with, you know, anywhere between 2,500 and 3,000 people, depending on time of year, depending on just where we're at. And we have a responsibility to that team to make sure that they feel seen, valued, and supported. That's a huge part of what our role is. And if we don't do that, then they can't deliver. They can't have that kind of impact. And so it's it's really important that we continue to um, emphasize and invest in things internally. And it doesn't mean being internally focused with, with blinders on, but it means taking care of your own house. It's why we launched uh, our volunteer service time program, which pays employees to volunteer in educational organizations in their immediate communities, because we think that's really, really important. So, you know, it's why we have a remote first uh, work environment, because we feel it's it's important that people have flexibility, that they are able to work the way that they've told us works best for them. So we have to have our own house in order if we're going to have any sort of impact. So I I, I jump up on that soapbox and I, I, I talk to people across the industry um, in at other companies, I don't really view them as competitors per se. They're more like colleagues that are all working on behalf of this purpose. We all have our own things that we do and, and our own um, our own goals and, and all of that, but we have to work together. One company is not going to be able to really address those existential challenges. We have to be working collectively and, and it's going to take all of us thinking more in that way and thinking about how we can come together in new and creative ways so that we can make an impact. So that's it. I'll get off the soapbox and I'll- No, 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 I love it because I'm going to jump on it now because community is essential to this whole thing. And I've learned this, you know, through trial and tragedy in my own uh, experience. You know, uh, for me, uh, living in Detroit, I've returned to the city of my birth after being away for 30 years and raising my kids somewhere else. And now when I came back, you know, I'm um, I'm a white person of privilege in a city that's 80 percent uh, black and brown people. And what I have learned, you know, when people ask me, what do you love about being back in Detroit and why are you so excited about, you know, being Mr. Detroit? You know, you're always so enthusiastic about what is it? It's the people, number one. And number two, it's the blessing. It's the absolute blessing of being able to understand what it's like for others. When I look around my neighborhood and I live right downtown, there are four high schools within walking distance of my building, right in downtown Detroit, four high schools. And here's the sad statistics of them. At one point in time in the Detroit school system, if you were a black or brown boy between the ages of 14 and 17, you were 24% graduation rate. So you had a 24% chance of graduation. Now, during that same period, the Family Independence Agency, which oversees adjudicated youth, had a 92% graduation rate. And so in this community, what we're essentially saying is that, that you marry those two statistics. If you live in our community, 
you have a statistically greater likelihood if you are black or brown and male between the ages of 14 and 17, you're, you have a greater likelihood of graduating if you're a class A felon. Now, this, now we can take the politics out of that, the gender out of that. We can take anything. You can be Republican, Democratic, Green, Libertarian, trans, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant. doesn't matter. That's a problem for all of us, and that's the community I think that you're talking about, is we have to mobilize our communities where we care about every child, whether or not they're born to us. And I think we have to amass a coalition of the caring that, that, that works with teachers, that works with the schools, that comes in and says, I'm here to help, and I don't have any answers. Tell me what I can do. And we let them help us understand better what they need because they see it every day so that we can lift all boats. We can bring resources to it. It's no longer a question of money. It's no longer a question of anything other than a dedicated will to do better. And I think that's what's so uh, exciting about what you guys have been talking about is in the midst of all of these challenges in this very disrupted educational landscape, each of you comes to your work excited and enthusiastic about the possibilities of making it better. And for that, I applaud you. And to our listening and viewing audience uh, at Disrupt Ed, we're talking to three super gigantic thought leaders in the education space that are truly making a difference. And what I'd also like to say to those of you who are listening is if you're a teacher, an educator, a parent, God bless you for the work you're doing with our children, because we all share a common destiny to make sure they're standing on our shoulders, being able to live the life they best imagine for themselves with a solid education as a start. So, John, that's my soapbox to add to your soapbox. But I think you're right. I think community is essential to this whole thing happening the way we all want it to. Any closing thoughts before we end the second episode of Disrupt Ed with you three cheerleaders for a better way of educating our kids? I'll start with you, Kemi. Any closing thoughts? I'm just building off of what John said in terms of purpose and impact. I, you know, I, you asked me what inspired me at the top of this, this, this journey today. Uh, and I actually thought about it on the break. You know, what ins also inspires me is the story of my father-in-law, Joe Willie Fletcher, was born in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, had a third grade education, could not read, could barely write. He signed his signature with an X because that's all he could write. I come to work every day helping, trying to help break a cycle of generational poverty and provide more opportunities for Joe Willie Fletcher's sons and their sons and so and daughters and so on and so forth um so you know when i think about education you know my 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 goal and my inspiration and my purpose is really to disrupt the inequities in the system and help close the opportunity gap so you know joe there's no more joe willie fletcher fletcher third grade education can't read can barely write um and my hope you know is that he's you know looking down from heaven at his son who's now my husband and, you know, doing quite well for himself um, and helping raise the next generation. So that's, that's my hope. And that's why I wake up every day to do this work with, with these fun folks. Joy and adventure is also part of 
what I believe in. I have to have joy and I have to have adventure. So put those two together, working with John and Ashley has been, uh, to be honest, you know, I, I don't usually say this, but it's been a dream, dream so far. I'll turn it over to John. Oh, how am I supposed to follow that, Ron? Come on, that's not fair. <laughs> no, I think the one thing I'm thinking about is it's related to what Kemi just concluded with, which is this group of people that I work with. And, and you know, Ron, you talk about this, like it's all about the, the, the people. And and I, I feel, yes, we are an education company. We are serving teachers and students, all the things we've been talking about. But I go back to what I said a few minutes ago about having our our house in order. It is really important for me to have an impact with the people I work with. Um, how can I help uh, mentor people who are getting started in their career? How can I um, connect with somebody who can benefit from mentoring me? Um, you know, how can I um, work with somebody to solve a problem that they can't figure out on their own? I, I'm just constantly thinking about impact internally because I know that if 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 I consider myself uh, professionally that way and really value that, value that role that I can play in various forms. Sometimes it's just being in a room and not saying a word and just being there and, and supporting, you know, and, and that's, that's a lot of it. And I, and I think, you know, that is something that I continue to try to get better at, continue to value even more than I did the day before. And I see the impact that then has, as we then go out and try to help the people try to do the the things we're doing as a business. But I can't, I, I cannot um, overstate how important that is to me personally and professionally and just how impactful I think it is. So um, definitely uh, have all the same things to say that, that Kemi just said about, about this team and the work we're doing and, and people like you Ron, people like you who are trying to, um, you know, give voice to the conversations that need to be had. So really appreciate you. Thank you, John, because I think this is such an important conversation. If you're a parent, or you're a teacher and the administrator, a thought leader, an educator, or a titan of industry, you know, this is the heart and soul of it, is making sure that everyone has access to a high-quality education. Ashley, your closing thoughts. Bring it home for us. I think we're going to be talking about a common theme here. I mean, I know it's very tempting in ed tech to spend a lot of time talking about tech. And we certainly do. We spend a lot of our time talking and thinking and working on tech. <laughs> but I think um, the why has nothing to do with technology. Our technology is a tool. What we're really doing is we're here to serve people. Um, and the technology that we leverage to do that is a tool to serve people. So, um, you know, some people may feel differently about the ed tech businesses that they're a part of, but I think for us and many people in our ecosystem, we think about our purpose and define our purpose, as we've talked about earlier today, about the people we serve. The technology that we leverage to do that is the tool by which we serve those, those people. And I think we, you know, what really gives me hope, um, and the energy fuels the work we do. As Kemi and John talked about, we're not only striving on behalf of our family members um, and the people that we care about personally. I also come from a, a family of educators and think about that and I'm inspired by that every day. We're not just thinking about our family members, we're thinking about 
your family members and our neighbors' family members and the next, you know, family members in the next town over in this ecosystem, we're struggling and striving to provide every student, every educator, every teacher, every administrator with equitable access to training and tools, technology and resources to be effective. Um, to be good at what they're showing up to do every day. And in doing so, giving each of these administrators, these teachers, these students who are striving to serve our family members, our neighbors, our friends, people we've never met before, an opportunity to develop their own agency so they can make their own decisions and have an opportunity to truly decide um, what they want to do with their future. And um, I honestly, I can't, I can't think of a better team um, that I'd rather do that with. I can't think of, I couldn't be more grateful for the team that we have doing that because as John described, this does come back to purpose. And if we stay committed to that purpose, there is no one silver bullet. It's not going to be easy. We're not going to, none of us are just going to plunk down um, as you described uh, one purchase worth of curriculum and solve all the problems in a district. We need each other. We need each other to work every angle we can work, um, to empathize with every problem that we can empathize with, to build and be an ally to every person in the ecosystem we can, and then just to be tenacious, to be tenacious about going after it. That's the same thing we ask of our students and we have to ask that of one another. Wonderful. To our listening and viewing audience, this has been another episode of Disrupt Ed. Catch both of these episodes with this fearsome team of change agents in K-12. Ashley, John, Kenny, thank you for joining us. This has been another episode. Until the next time, take care. Take care.